Well, the next figure in our church history study is Jonathan Edwards. I'll start this particular lesson with a quote by Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite quotes by Edwards, and then we'll look together at Ephesians chapter 3 for a moment. Here's the quote. Jonathan Edwards said, The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. That is an excellent quote. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin which made it necessary. The scripture from Ephesians 3, I'd like to read for you and then we'll consider it again at the end. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 and following, says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to be strengthened with all power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The first question we ask is, who was Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards was born on October 5th, 1703. And he was born to a minister by the name of Timothy Edwards. And his mother's name was Esther. His father um, is reported to have received a fairly meager salary as a minister, and he had to supplement his income in order to take care of their family by tutoring boys for college. Now, that's quite a significant uh, aspect of God's providence in Edward's life in light of how often as a young boy he would have had other boys in the home studying, tutoring under his dad at times, to prepare for college and how that would be relevant later on in Edward's life. Jonathan Edward's mother, Esther, was the daughter to a minister by the name of Solomon Stoddard. And she is regarded as having been highly intelligent herself and well studied in the scriptures. Jonathan Edwards had ten sisters and no brothers. His parents and his older sisters were all highly educated and they proved instrumental in his own preparation for higher learning. Now, I had three sisters and no brothers, and that was all I wanted. I love every one of them, but that was plenty, and especially when all their friends would come over too. But to have ten sisters and no brothers, I believe uh, Edwards was born, he was either the I want to say the fifth child maybe, and so he had, I think, four older sisters and maybe five younger sisters, or maybe six younger sisters. Um, but at any rate, Jonathan Edwards would go on to attend college at Yale at the age of 12 years old. Although he studied theology for two years after graduating from Yale, he maintained an avid interest in science and natural philosophy throughout his life. 
And that was an interesting thing, especially in this period of history, that you would have a man who was focused on theology and yet also very much interested in natural philosophy and science. Of course, we know Isaac Newton and other people with a strong conviction towards the truth of God's Word also were incredible scientists who discovered many things historically. As a matter of fact, when I was reading about and reconsidering Edward's interest in science, I just remembered hearing Bruce talk about photosynthesis and in the context of God's glory and his design and nature. And, and that's a very similar idea when it comes to Edward's commitment to these things. Although many of his contemporaries considered his fascination with science and philosophy to almost be a contradiction with his commitment to theology. And yet Edwards believed that the order of the created world was an incredible testament to the glory of its creator. You can go and read it early on, even from a very young age, he had a, a real interest in uh, spiders. Edwards had a, a strong fascination with spiders. If you ever saw or talked with Joe Inslee, he in his office keeps spiders. And part of the reason he talks about his uh, interest in Jonathan Edwards and Edwards' papers and things that he wrote on spiders and just considering the glory of God's design in the spider. Um, Edwards is regarded by many, even to this day, to be the greatest philosophical mind that has ever been produced on American soil. And that's a staggering statement. And if you're paying attention in our church history series, Edwards is the first figure born native to uh, what is known today as the United States of America, though during his life it was still yet the colonies, the New England colonies. At ages 18 to 19, after finishing his education and studying theology for two years, between ages 18 and 19, he served as a supply pastor for a small church in New York City, but he would decline their invitation to remain as their pastor. And I believe perhaps part of the reason for this is that it was toward the end of Edward's time in college, he was still unsure about his own conversion. His dad came up in a more Puritan, Presbyterian tradition, so he would have been baptized as a baby. And then as he's growing up, he's looking for this sense of confirmation that he belongs to God himself and not just acting out according to what his parents had taught him. And Edwards did struggle um, for a while, and especially over, um, he had a really hard time with the biblical doctrine of election. So Edwards, he's studying theology, he's seeing the scriptures, he's seeing that there are those who are chosen by God to be saved and those who aren't, and he wrestled with, am I elect or not? And it's interesting that um, whenever he came to the end of that struggle, it was upon realizing and resting upon the sovereign grace of God and salvation. And almost immediately, his concerns and his doubts about himself were done away with. And it's likely because much of his insecurity early on was caused by measuring his own worthiness or sincerity. Now, that to me is more or less, I would admit, my own conjecture. It just seems interesting that someone would wrestle with whether or not they were actually saved that the tendency for a person wrestling with their own salvation is to be measuring themselves and their own experience. But the one who has confident assurance in what God has done and says, this is what God has accomplished and it's not anything to do with me, kind of like his quote, we don't contribute anything but our sin. 
And so being able to rest in what God accomplished, I find that fascinating. Well, then you fast forward from age 19 and then a few years later at age 23, a reference historically, this would have been in 1727, Edwards was ordained as the minister at Northampton and he was made the assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. During this time, um, Edwards was not the primary uh, preaching pastor, minister of the church, nor was he focused primarily on visiting church members, but he was known as the scholar, the pastor scholar, which essentially Edwards would spend up to 13 hours a day in study. And that was his primary commitment as a minister in the church was studying the scriptures. That same year, he would marry his wife, Sarah. Jonathan and Sarah Edwards would go on to have 11 children together. And you can go and research the legacy of this couple. And it is extraordinary, the legacy that their children would go on to have. Matter of fact, one of my first sermons I ever preached here, I think the first weekend I ever visited St. Francis, I preached a sermon on Psalm 1, the blessed man, and I went through the history of the impact of Jonathan Edwards and his children upon uh, the nation here, vice presidents, university presidents, and all the significant figures in their life. And they had many godly and influential descendants after that, um, both politically and religiously. Jonathan Edwards would go on to accomplish very many great and remarkable things himself, most notably would be his impact and leading influence during the First Great Awakening. But he would also go on to suffer through intense opposition and trials and even at one point be essentially voted out of the church that he was in. He faced such severe opposition. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' life, I believe, can hardly be measured or contained within such a brief message and of all the church history lessons that I've done that I try to keep within the 20 to 30 minute mark if I can Edwards is by far the one that I have elected to leave the most out of and I just strongly encourage you to go and read uh, read the history of his life and so the next question we'll ask the second question is what was the state of the church during the life of Jonathan Edwards the answer is that the state of the church in the New England colonies was still in many ways in its infancy, at least in as much as what it would develop to become. And yet, many of the colonists that had moved to New England were those who had fled to the Americas to escape religious persecution in England. And the tensions between the colonies and England were already sort of developing. And you can imagine how this works. You've got one family who moves there, and the first family, they're really used to the governing authority of the monarchy. They get there to these, this new place, this new continent, and then they still kind of have a frame of mind of being under the rule and oversight of England. Well, then, a generation or two later, you've got children that have grown up on a completely different continent without those same really observable exercises of authority of England, and so it, it begins to develop a, a different feel about it. And so people had grown accustomed in many ways to a measure of self-governance and separation from England itself. Now, in addition to this, many of the families which had originally moved to the colonies for religious freedom were into the next generation. And as it happens, whenever you have a, a generation of 
convictionally religious people that it doesn't guarantee that their children and grandchildren will be. And so as this happens, there is a great deal of religious nominalism that had begun to set in. And as the number of people in the colonies grew, the need for a move of God's spirit grew with it. And that's a very brief summarization, but hopefully gives you an idea of some of the things that Edwards would have been facing, some of the things that as well we'll go on to consider George Whitfield and, and as well uh, John Wesley and some of the, the issues surrounding the colonies during the time of this great awakening. The third question I'll ask is what impact did Jonathan Edwards have during his life upon the church? Most famously, Jonathan Edwards delivered his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is referred somewhat anecdotally as the sermon for which New England never forgave Jonathan Edwards. That's one way that he's remembered. Um, Jonathan Edwards, in preaching this sermon, which is considered to be the spearhead and starting point of the Great Awakening itself in the colonies, is surely one of his most notable achievements. It's at least one of those things that he's most popular for. A common day uh, analogy might be this. Many of us have seen, maybe seen more than once, Paul Washer's shocking youth message. And many people can trace their own spiritual vitality to seeing that message. And the reality is Paul Washer has done many things that are notable and significant, dealing with the love of God and laboring in the church and missions but most people only know him for this one message that got really popular where he was very loud, very adamant, very fiery. Well, in a like way, many people, I think, have, have limited their understanding of Edwards simply to this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But Jonathan Edwards was used by God in that sermon to capture the attention of the people. And go and read the content of that sermon. You can find it today. Um, and you'll find Edwards calling upon the people to consider their lives in light of eternity. His sermon would go on to be printed and distributed all over the place. People would read and hear about this sermon. And in the sermon, he called upon each individual person to realize the only thing that was keeping them out of hell and away from the judgment of God was the slenderest of threads of God's mercy. That the only thing keeping any person alive at any moment is the sheer mercy of God. And that the only reason why people who were separated from God had not been born again were not currently under the judgment of God was that God had not yet been pleased to put them under judgment. And that they were not guaranteed to stay in such a position of mercy. It could be removed at any moment. But in addition to this, Edwards proved to be a mighty influence in working with some of the, the overflow or the effects of this great awakening, this revival. And what would happen is what happened actually is there were many people that were stirred emotionally. You can't read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God without being stirred in your soul to think this is phenomenal. This is causing me to think about life, death, heaven and hell, my own state. Well, many people were emotionally stirred by that sermon as well as others during this time period. And yet, for many, it was merely emotionalism. And it was not true conversion. And um, Edward's work, known as Religious Affections, called for a heart examination of love, genuine love for Christ, which was found to be lacking in many 
who had believed themselves to be saved. There's no real heart desire for Christ, just an appeal to some experience they had. Now that is extremely uh, significant. If you were to take someone today, say if you were to take a big name person or maybe a nobody who was to go and preach somewhere today, and then all of a sudden they started to see thousands of people profess faith in Christ as a result of their sermon, And then you saw that same man who preached it going around interacting with investing in the lives of people that said they professed to know Christ and asking them, has your heart really been turned? Almost as if he's working against his own notoriety. You would not often expect to see an evangelist question the legitimacy of the professions of faith that were made after his preaching. And almost as if to say, don't be so convinced that just because people have been moved by something I had to say that it was legitimate. He was more concerned about the reality of the people's souls. And he often did find this emotionalism that was not according to scriptural conversion. And I would also add to that. So you have his sinners in the hands of an angry God. You've got the time he spent preaching and pastoring and his study. And then you've got his religious affections. And I would say again that time would fail us to consider all the notable contributions which Edwards has made, both in developing and understanding God's sovereign purpose in salvation, which he wrote extensively about, seeing God is really sovereign. That doctrine he once wrestled with in his own conversion of God's sovereign election was something he would go on to write extensively about and as well as anyone you'll find. But he also had a primary focus on this personal understanding of the depths of God's love. And this is going to be related to the scripture we read. And I think it really undergirds a lot of what uh, what we want to consider about Edwards, that Edwards, some of his most profound writings were dealing with the love of God. Now, you might expect that if you hear a man preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, how loving a guy you think that's going to be. But then you go and read his works And every lie is full of these deep expressions of affections for Christ. One thing that another quote by Edwards, or I guess I'll paraphrase it, Edwards suggested this. Without in any way denying the eternality of the Trinity, of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, Edwards suggested this, that the love that the Father had for the Son And the love that the Son has for the Father was so intense, so real, and so perfect that it could only be realized in a third person. Essentially, Edwards posited that the Holy Spirit was the personification of the love between the Father and the Son. Now that's a mind-stretching description of the Holy Spirit, and it's worth some consideration. But then the final contribution that Edwards made, I would say, is this, is that he had an avid desire for an experimental awareness of Christ himself. You can go and read of the things that he would do in his pursuit of Christ. Just one such example is that Edwards is reported to have adjusted his diet. That he found that he studied during the middle of the afternoon and he found if he ate lunch before he went into his study, his study would be more difficult, his mind wouldn't be as sharp, and so he would fast, not for a legalistic reason, but because he wanted to grow in his knowledge of God and an experimental awareness of Christ, and he did not want a full stomach to hinder him from that. He was so committed, it was a desire in his heart for Christ that produced that commitment. Okay, and then the fourth question or fourth consideration is the death of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards died at the age of 54. 
after receiving a smallpox vaccine. Edwards maintained his interest in science throughout all his life, and then when the smallpox vaccine or inoculation, I believe, is that, that, that would be the older term for, is that it, it? inoculation? What's the ancient, I can't remember the right term for what they called shots back then. That's essentially what it was, is a smallpox vaccine. And he was in favor of people taking this, advances in science and medicine. And so he took it as kind of an encouragement for other people to take it. And then he actually ended up dying as a result of taking this smallpox vaccine. And though, if you look at Edward's life, 54 years, um, half the, over almost half the room is older than that already in here. And yet, it seems like a short period of time by today's standards. But the impact for truth that he had during those 54 years is considerable. And the value of his writings remain today for anybody who takes the time to study them. The fifth question I would ask is, how should the life of Jonathan Edwards impact us today? Now, of all the things which are most impressive about Jonathan Edwards, let me suggest that the heart of all that he did from his own conversion onward was fueled by his own pursuit of a knowledge of the love of Christ. And again, I refer you to Ephesians 3 and I urge us all to see the, the value in, in Edward's focus and his pursuit. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I believe Jonathan Edwards had come to know the love of Christ for himself and that it is in light of this love, in light of his understanding of the unsearchable depths of Christ's love, that I believe is what compelled him more than anything, even with regards to his strong language and sinners in the hands of an angry God. That he had such a burden for those who were lost to come to know the love of Christ and be saved that he was yearning to compel them with the most severe language he could think of. Now, I personally am not in, inclined towards trying to scare people into heaven through terrifying language. And yet there is something within me that finds value in facing reality and the reality of God's judgment and the reality of the fact that those who are not saved need to look to Christ, come to believe in Him that they might be reconciled to God. And there is a stirring and a burden within you if you really love God and love people to see that happen for other people. Every Christian has some sense of this. But if there's one thing that the church today ought to set ourselves to, let it be that we have a knowledge of the love of Christ. Now, not a superficial love which will deny the wrath of God or disregard our sin or our unworthiness but a love which surpasses understanding. 
A love that's shed abroad in the Christian heart as we realize the glory of God's love for us as seen in the cross of Christ, but then also as we come to experience the love of God for us by the presence of His Spirit and a greater and greater understanding of His Word. It's interesting to me to note that those who have most earnestly and diligently studied the Scriptures and sought to understand God to the fullest, the greatest philosopher this country, well, this continent has ever produced, that his hours and hours of study had him more consumed with the realities of God's love than anything else. That's a compelling thing to me. That if we want to rightly understand the truth of God's Word, it's taking us to that height and breadth and length and depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And I pray that would be our portion as well. So with that, I'll close us now in prayer and we can gather for a time of corporate prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the glory of Your Son and His love. Father, I thank You for showing this very love and glory to Jonathan Edwards that he might be stirred, that You were pleased to use him in the way that You did and even impact the entire foundation of a nation. Lord, through His influence and others that will go on to consider, Father, I pray that You would be pleased to work in us a glimpse of Your glory and Your love that is so sweet and so savory and satisfying that it it consumes us. Our every thought would rest upon what we see of You in Your Word. Father, thank You for this time. I ask that You would bless the time that remains for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.